Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm Liv. I'm Liv. I'm back once again with Let's Talk About Myths, baby. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. She who rants. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. 
on the four-year anniversary of this podcast, and I am your host, Liv, the woman who cannot believe this is her actual job. Hello, and welcome to the first time I sit in a room with my cat and a microphone. My name is Liv. I'm completely obsessed with mythology. I have a totally useless Bachelor's of Arts in Classical Civilizations that basically has prepared me for this and only this. And so here I go. Thank you all so much for listening for however long you have been listening. If you've been with me since the beginning, that's so fucking cool. If you joined last week, thank you. Welcome. We have some fun. What a fucking wild ass ride it's been. Who knew Greek mythology was so perfect for interpretation by a feminist who loves the hell out of it, but also isn't shy about calling Zeus out for being such an utter shit. It's truly the coolest thing in the whole world that I've been able to do this for so long, that it's become my job, that so many of you have hung around to keep listening to me tell these stories, to listen to me grow throughout it. I'm so grateful. This is episode 133, Loving Medusa and Hating Theseus, four years of Let's Talk About Myths, baby. Now, I planned this special episode because of the anniversary and because when you're hearing this, yesterday was my birthday and thus I didn't want to research and write a whole special episode. But the more I read your favorite moments and listened back to quotes and quips, the more proud I am of this podcast, of what I've done, and of all of you amazing listeners. So while it feels a bit self-indulgent, I think this episode is going to be better and more meaningful, at least to me personally, than I ever imagined when I was planning it out. Because today I am here with all of your favorite moments, along with some of my own. I asked you to share those moments, and honestly, you really delivered. Thank you. It's been so, so much fun reading through the Instagram comments and the emails. It makes me even more proud and happy to have been at this for four years because I have the absolute coolest and nicest and most supportive listeners. I will be announcing the winners of the giveaway soon via Instagram and email if I haven't already by the time you're hearing this, but today is reserved for the incredible submissions and comments both there and from those of you who submitted every other place. Just like I have already, I'm going to be playing clips from those favorite moments. I'm going to be sharing your comments, the things that are your favorites, but also the things that you suggested that ended up being my favorites. It's honestly just been so fun reading through these, putting them together, and I'm really excited to share it with you all. First, we're starting from the very beginning with this very appropriate fave moment from Halamru on Instagram. When you realized you could sing the name of the podcast like Salt and Peppa. 
Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And frankly, uh, it just occurred to me to sing it like that. So... Anyway, I'm super clever, I know. I do want to say, I always knew I was naming the podcast, you know, inspired by that song. It just somehow never occurred to me to sing it until that moment. Some of you had favorite things that really just sum up the podcast in a way that makes me so happy, like Lauren Barmania on Instagram, who said, This might be weirdly general, but I love the early episodes where the audio wasn't perfect and you're still learning. It feels like we are all able to grow with you. That wasn't really general. It's just such a nice way of seeing the growth of the show, and it makes me so happy that you noticed. Or even more personal to me is this one from Ariel Faith, who said, My favorite part is whenever I hear your cat in the background. Or Leah Watt, who said, When you let us know in your episode that any loud noises that we hear is just your cat purring really loud. Lupin thanks you all. He's sitting right next to me, though he's being quiet. Abby Broom said, I love all your stuff, but if I had to pick, it would be the title of the first episode, Eating Kids and Killing Dads. I feel like it just sums up your podcast. Eating Kids and Killing Dads, How the Greek World Came to Be. You are not wrong. That is one of my favorite titles I've ever come up with, which is fitting given it is the first one. And so many of you name the very first episode as your favorite, and while I personally wish I'd done more research or talked more slowly, I love that it's a favorite for so many of you. In fact, most people start the podcast with that episode, even with my warning at the top of it. And given how many of you stick around, it must be pretty fun. One of my favorite moments, and one that a lot of you still quote to me now, was also the favorite of Grace Catherine Davis on Instagram, who said... Aphrodite's creation is always an epic story, to say the least. Like I mentioned, a sea foam erupted from where Uranus's bits actually landed. And from that foam, our girl Aphrodite was born. That's right, the goddess of love, beauty, desire, pleasure, and procreation was born from the sea foam of castrated man parts. It's romantic, isn't it? Just picture that classic painting, Botticelli's The Birth of Venus, Aphrodite or Venus in the Roman looking all angelic in her clamshell. She's surrounded by beautiful figures. The sea is the backdrop. That clamshell is floating on top of castration foam. Which leads right into one of the best things about having a podcast about Greek mythology. I make a lot of it serious with the feminism and everything, talking about how poorly people were treated, but ultimately so much of Greek mythology is just fucked up and funny and weird and silly. That's one of my favorite things about it, and it's a lot of your favorites too. Given yesterday was my birthday, and thus I am very much a Cancer, we're starting there. One of the silliest, best moments of all of Heracles' epic stories and his even more epic labors. Like Bren Hope 7 commented, My fave was when you covered the naming of the constellations. I especially loved the crab. While Heracles is working to defeat the Hydra, Hera sends another beast to distract him, to give the Hydra the upper hand. Hera sends a giant crab. A giant crab that Heracles kills in about four seconds. 
I'm not kidding. One source, Apollodorus, explains that this enormous crab showed up to help the Hydra. It bit Heracles's foot, and so Heracles killed it. Another source says he just stepped on it. Either way, this crab provided a grand total of zero help to the Hydra, and seriously, might as well not have been there in the first place. But it was. It helped, air quotes, apparently. And so when the crab was killed by Heracles with ease and absolutely no fanfare, Hera places it in the sky as the constellation Cancer, in thanks for its so-called service. Another of my favorite and weird and straight-up silly moments is Hermes, a fucking weirdo. I personally go for the entirety of that Hermes episode and its accompanying Homeric hymn because they're all, ah, because what the fuck were those people smoking? But Kira drilled it down in an email. She said her favorite moment was, where you talk about baby Hermes with his freshly made sandals. I think about this moment sometimes because it's just so funny and not a sentence you'd normally say. Next up, he makes himself some sandals, brilliantly crafted sandals. The Homeric hymn is very, very impressed with the sandals that baby Hermes invents for himself, so I'm sharing it with you. But I mean, minor point here. He made some sandals. This next bit is 100% for me because one of my favorite stories ever, like I said, is the Hermes and the Homeric hymn and everything that comes in it because it's fucking wild. And my favorite part is just how Hermes begins his young life as a baby. He may have been an advanced infant, but a baby he still was. Before Hermes could get anywhere in his search for cattle to steal, he encountered a turtle. Oh, what a cute and lovely turtle, Hermes said to himself. He quite enjoyed the animal, examining it and appreciating its means of evolution. What a shell, so protective, but not protective enough. Once Hermes has examined and appreciated the turtle, told the little guy how impressive he was, how very cool, how much Hermes loved him, he realized he had an even better idea. So he killed the turtle and emptied out its shell. You know, as a baby is wont to do. He emptied out its shell and attached some reeds and things to the right spots to invent the lyre. And these next two clips of weird and silly bits of mythology come from Malia Dean and Allison C on Instagram. A bit of commentary on that old house of Atreus. And fun facts about sea monsters. With Hermione as their hostage, they'll have a way out should Menelaus attempt to kill them once they've killed Helen. They'll simply threaten to kill Hermione, too, Electra proposes, because everyone in this story is super fucked up. Let me just vehemently point out that he sends a generic sea monster and not a kraken, because that's insane. Once more with feeling, the kraken is a Norse myth, for God's sake. It's very far away from Greece, Norway. In case you didn't know, check a map. It's really far. This is not a thing. Obviously, there's one woman who is a top favorite, not only for me, but for so many of you all too. A certain lady with snakes for hair and who was only defending herself, who never actually hurt anyone or did anything bad, despite what the angry bros on the internet would have you believe. 
a woman who was a survivor of assault and an overall badass. Medusa. There were so many of you that talked about Medusa moments as your favorites. I had to pick just a few because fuck do we love this badass woman. Medusa hides. She hides until one day a random man shows up with a sword, a shield, a bag, and winged sandals. On that day, the man uses the shield as a mirror so he doesn't see Medusa's face. She doesn't want him to see her hair as it is, made of angry, hissing snakes. She avoids him, but he's there to get her. He uses the shield so that she can't use her one form of defense, turning people into stone with a single look. This strange man who's appeared out of nowhere uses the shield as a mirror until finally he gets to her. With one swift motion, this strange man slices off Medusa's head. The snakes hiss and cry, and her head falls to the ground. D. Steiny said it best. Every time you mention Medusa, my heart skips a beat and breaks in half. And the gorgons who dwell beyond glorious ocean in the frontier land towards night, where are the clear-voiced Hesperides, Stheno and Euryale and Medusa, who suffered a woeful fate. She was mortal, but the two were undying and grew not old. Bookshelf Cat said, Your discussion about my main lady, Medusa, has probably stolen the spot for my fave moment. Leilani Sumili said, My favorite part was when you explain about Medusa and what her story was. I was always afraid of Medusa when I was younger. After I watched Percy Jackson movies from Disney, I'm glad I could hear her story and understand that she's not bad. Medusa was a Gorgon, born to Kido and Forcus. Now, here we don't know what a Gorgon is exactly. Keto is a sea monster goddess and Forcus is a primordial sea god. So basically we know they're three sisters born to these gods. We know that Medusa had sex with Poseidon and we know Perseus killed her and from her death were born their children. That is the oldest version of her story that we have. That's it. That's the whole of it. And again, it's not the original myth. There is no such thing. It is simply the oldest extant version. The oldest one we can look back on now. The cosmic force said, love all the real Medusa talk, especially about the new statue and how she's so powerful, so maligned, and was done so wrong by Athena. Jay Simone said, I loved the episode that was a conversation about Medusa. It was so interesting to hear about all the different stories about her while talking about how some men get so bent out of shape about her. This is really ripe for like really great productive feminist reception. And I mean, it is. It's a great myth to talk about, you know, a whole range of feminist issues like uh, internalized misogyny, stigma, sexual abuse. I mean, the Me Too movement, it's quite often used as a kind of metonym for that. And yeah, I, I think a lot of men just really don't like it. B. Potter said the Medusa episode with Nikita. I love how you brought in the modern ideas when talking about this myth. And Perseus still went there to kill her. And we are supposed to believe that she was in some way a a villain. Like, how did we turn this woman into a villain? Like, even when I was a child, I read Medusa's story and I saw all of those interpretations of her on screen. And I just used to be like, 
why like if yeah. you go looking to like it's it's the equivalent of even the way that is depicted on screen they always go looking for her they go looking for a monster to kill right and then they act yeah. as if they're heroes by killing this monster yeah. and i'm just like you went into something's home and then you tried to kill it even if it was a monster like so many hero stories are just of these like men who just like decided okay we're just going to go in there into this place we are not welcome and we basically it like there's a big beware sign in front of it and like <laughs> stay away but we're going to go in there and we're going to fight that thing and we're going to kill it and everyone's going to think we're heroes what jen screen said specifically the episode about arachne and medusa Solchara said the talks of Medusa are amazing and an absolute favorite. Being a sexual assault survivor myself, I loved having a character that I can relate to that makes me feel so empowered. This is why I love Medusa and why I will defend her always. There's no cut and dry interpretation of her. No one myth, no one woman, one monster. Each of these varied descriptions holds weight for one reason or another. Each is valid in its own way. She is a beautiful woman. She is a victim of Poseidon. She is monstrous. She is powerful. All are valid and none should be discounted. She is whatever we want her to be. And therein lies the power. She is one big, fascinating question mark. Medusa was sometimes a monster, sometimes a goddess, sometimes a beautiful woman. Ultimately, though, throughout generations of the ancient world, she was a symbol of power and protection, and I am more than happy to take her on as a symbol of badass women and feminism in the 21st century. Because why the fuck not? It makes misogynists really angry, and that's satisfying as all hell. And of course, all of this love that you all have for Medusa originally, at least for the most part, stems from that episode I did retelling her story alongside Arachne's, both of which are super powerful stories of women interacting with gods in the mythology, interacting specifically with Athena in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Arachne, on the other hand, weaves into her piece the scene of Europa, the young Phoenician princess who was tricked by the image of a bull. Europa is looking back as she sits on the bull's back. She's calling to her friends as she and the bull descend into the sea. Arachne is making a fucking statement here. She's not just messing with Minerva. She's not just saying she's better at weaving than Minerva. She's taking issue with everything the gods do to humans. If it weren't for this, I might be tempted to make the point that Arachne could have avoided her fate. She could have conceded that Minerva was better at weaving than her, but she didn't. She didn't because that wasn't the point. The point was that regardless of how good the humans are at anything, the gods always have to be better. The gods always have to fuck with the humans, both figuratively and literally. The gods are just making trouble, and Arachne sees that. She sees that probably more than any other human in Greek mythology. It's obvious to her. She's not just competing with Minerva when it comes to weaving skills. She's standing up for humanity in a way that no other human has done in mythology. So it's not just Europa that Arachne weaves into her piece. Nope. She also weaves Asteria. Asteria is a titaness. She was pursued by Jupiter, Zeus, in the form of an eagle. 
and Arachne weaves Leda, who Jupiter seduces and rapes in the form of a swan, and Antiope, a woman that Jupiter seduces and rapes in the form of a satyr. She bears twins from that fucked up union with the king of the gods. And Arachne weaves in Alcmena, a mother of Hercules, who Jupiter tricks by transforming himself into her own husband, Amphitryon. And Danae, who's impregnated by Zeus in the form of a shower of gold. And Aegina and Mnemosyne and Proserpina, the Roman name for Persephone, a woman on this piece who was kidnapped and raped by Pluto rather than Jupiter. That's the Roman name for Hades. And Arachne isn't done yet. She shows Neptune, Poseidon, who also transforms himself into a bull and rapes the daughter of Aeolus, a girl whose name we aren't given. And while she's on Neptune's awfulness, she also shows Basalti's daughter, another girl whose name we don't have. And Medusa, mother of Pegasus, and Melantho, who Neptune rapes in the form of a dolphin, which is another story entirely. Guys, Neptune, Poseidon, whatever, he's fucking awful. Arachne shows all of this in a beautiful scene of incredible women ruined by the gods. And of course, I'd prefer not to use the term ruined. Certainly being victimized by a man doesn't ruin a woman. But unfortunately, in this world, it does. The man gets off scot-free, the woman is ruined. Such is mythology and life in the ancient world. Arachne knows what she's doing. She's making a powerful statement about the power of the gods and how they use it to fuck over humans at every chance they get. A wonderful person named Sarah from my original hometown and university town Montreal sent me a lovely message and reminded me of these quotes that fit so perfectly with what I wanted from this anniversary episode. The weave-off begins! And here, Ovid bestows upon his reader quite the use of weaveology, that is, words and terms I don't understand, and description of a process I don't understand. How nice would it be to talk to the women of ancient Greece and tell them that I have no idea what weaving entails, because in my generation, even though we still make less than men and are generally treated as lesser people than our male counterparts, we're able to decide to do things other than weaving and cooking and cleaning. Ah, how impressed and disappointed they would be Nearly 3,000 years, and though equality still seems a far-off concept, at least we can do things like start our own podcast from scratch where we talk about all the bullshit the ancient ladies had to deal with. The times, they have changed. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As much as this podcast is about feminism and badass women and gender non-conforming people and everyone else who isn't a straight man and how I love to talk about the intense stuff, the serious stuff, the important topics, it is also, of course, about the most entertaining and awful of straight men. He left her there because he's a giant, mind-blowing asshole. I mean, I always tell audiences when I'm on stage that the most dangerous place for a woman in Greek myth is anywhere near Theseus. Even Plutarch is there going, yes, he had quite a lot of marriages which started badly and ended badly. You're like, mate, when you're having shade thrown over you by Plutarch, (laughs) you have got a problem. That is all I'm saying. I think Theseus was a sociopathic con man who just killed all these random people in order to make himself seem heroic when he arrived in Athens. Yes, I'm talking about Theseus and Jason. Obviously, these two are my favorites to shit all over, but turns out you guys like to do it too. Surprise, surprise. He tells her it's her own fault that she's going to exile alone. Doesn't she want his money? If not, she should just say so. He's only here to help her. Oh, isn't he helpful? He's not in the wrong at all. Jason is a good boy who isn't doing anything wrong. Oh, don't we appreciate Jason? Unsurprisingly, you all had a lot to say about these guys, like Kate Doherty, who said, the Theseus episodes are funny, and Laurel Wren, who said, my favorite moments had to be all the Theseus and Jason slander. They 100% deserved it. 
Or Frida China, who provided this clip. Once the chorus has finished this badassery, the shitbag-in-chief, lord of all that is awful and vile, Jason, arrives on stage to be an absolute piece of human garbage and an all-around fucker. And thanks to Brandy, who mentioned the very first Theseus episode and said, Every time you said, strike X, Theseus, with so much frustration, I laughed out loud. After tearing the tree dude in half, and because he's a super great guy, he, quote, became intimate with the tree guy's daughter. Translation, he raped her, because I'm willing to bet she didn't jump at the chance to fuck the guy who just tore her dad in half. Bonus, he impregnates her and then leaves. Strike one, Theseus. No, Hippolyta ultimately gives birth to Hippolytus. And then, of course, is abandoned by Theseus, because that's just what he does. Strike two, Theseus. Theseus, in all his glory, decides on Helen, later of Troy, and kidnaps her. He decides to bring her to his mother's home, where she'll live until she's old enough. That's right, she is at this point an actual child. And not old enough in ancient Greece is a whole different concept than not old enough in 2017. I'm guessing she's like 12 at best. Strike three, Theseus. Theseus takes Ariadne with him when he escapes the labyrinth and Crete. So they go off together, so young, so in love after their adventure defeating a minotaur, and the lovers stop on the island of Naxos en route to Athens. Theseus professes his love for her, he tells her a million wonderful things about their future together, and they do the dirty. The next morning, Theseus promptly abandons Ariadne on the island and proceeds to marry her sister Phaedra because he's a goddamn asshole. Strike four, Theseus. He had one thing to do, remember, and that was to take five minutes, okay, more than five, maybe, I don't know, boats, and change the goddamn sails from black to white. Did he, though? Did he? Of course he didn't. Theseus's father, Aegeus, who's been standing on a cliff watching the sea every day since Theseus left, just hoping to the gods that his beloved son will return safely. He sees the ship approaching. He spots the black sails, and he's immediately so overcome with grief over the death of his son that he throws himself into the sea. Obviously, strike five, Theseus. Now it's just getting silly. Now this has been a lot of Theseus, but I won't let you forget just how shit Jason is, too. Do we believe any of the shit that Jason spews from his mouth? Absolutely not. Jason promises Hypsipyle something. Something that might sound a bit familiar. See, Jason swears to Hypsipyle that he will be with her as her partner for the rest of their lives. Where have we heard that before? Fucking Jason, honestly. But he doesn't wait for an answer. He's got some ranting to do. He continues his woe-is-me act, his aren't-I-the-best-and-what-a-victim-I-am act, and claims he's there because he's so worried about his children. Like Medea, he says he's worried about what the people of Corinth will do to them. He says he's there to save them. 
And finally, a suggestion from Rebecca Y on Instagram. Not quite about Jason, but definitely about one of the women he left behind. They said, one of my favorite moments was your mini OK Boomer rant. Hipsipoli listens to Polyzo's suggestions and she takes in the reaction of the women of Lemnos. I mean, this is tough. She has a point when it comes to an aging society without the aid of their children. Should I go on? Without the help of their children and grandchildren who are now forced to live in an increasingly growing hellscape where they'll never afford to own property or anything nice, really, because the salaries don't match the real estate prices basically anywhere and the aging society is actively ruining the planet because they don't want to accept that things can't be perfect forever and maybe they weren't the best generation but the most detrimental population and... Okay, Boomer, I'll stop. Honestly, it is getting so hard to pick quotes and comments and suggestions that all of you have provided because you gave me so many good options, but I'm trying to prioritize. So I would be leaving a very important story out if I did not mention how many of you absolutely love the Lysistrata, which I am here for. And one of the best suggestions came via email from Jessica, who said, My favorite episode was on the Lysistrata, because who doesn't love a group of badass women organizing around an anti-war effort? I love the sex positivity, talk of dildos, etc., but my favorite moment was when the chorus of useless men couldn't light the fire, so the female chorus had their buckets of water ready. The women spring into action and, carrying pitchers of water, race as fast as they can to the Acropolis to rescue the others. Of course, when they get there, they see that these useless old men have only just gotten their torch lit, and in fact, the reason there's so much smoke is that these dudes couldn't figure out how to get a fire going. The women are ready, though, and totally down to fight these old men, which is just a super fun part of the story. They put down their pitchers of water so that, if it comes to it, they can really swing. The two groups exchange very fiery and ancient threats of violence. The men threaten to set the women on fire, or if not them, then their friends inside the Acropolis. The women realize that they have the upper hand here, and they simply pick up their pitchers of water and pour them all over the men, who, sputtering angrily, complain about how wet they've gotten. I always have in my back pocket three stories that I have told on this podcast that all of you love more than any others. Arachne and Medusa, the Lysistrata, and Cupid and Psyche. Cupid and Psyche is absolutely the number one favorite across the board. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have their own favorites, but oh my god, the sheer volume of you that have that as your favorite, I love it. Makes me so happy, mostly because everyone loves it because of the passion I had while telling it, because it really was the myth that got me into this world. And so I think it really comes out in the episode, and so many of you loved it. Headful of Jellyfish on Instagram said, I really just love the entirety of the Cupid and Psyche arc you covered. Then she kisses her son with an open mouth and goes off to find a beach to lounge on. Again, she's a pretty chill lady. Aphrodite slash Venus has always been my favorite goddess. Let's be honest, she just gives zero fucks. Abby Thien said, The trilogy of Cupid and Psyche. Bailey Rose said, I absolutely loved the Cupid and Psyche trilogy. Also loved each mini myth you did. They were perfect add-ons to my day. Olivia G said, love the episode about Psyche and your episode on women in Herodotus's history inspired me to start reading the histories. 
And this time they feign as if they have all the concern in the world for their sister. We're just worried about you. You're living in a fantasy, but we've been keeping watch over you, agonizing about this terrible situation you're in. They tell Psyche they've found out that the husband that comes to her every night and the creepy crazy monster that the Oracle predicted she would marry are one and the same. (gasps) Dolce Silva said, I'm in love with how you narrate the story of Cupid and Psyche. I have repeated all three episodes many times. And Shannon Douglas said, I absolutely adore how you told the Cupid and Psyche story. Also, every time you call out the misogyny that's been passed down with each of the stories. Now Venus finally points out that she knows Psyche is indeed pregnant, and she starts rambling on about how she'll be a grandmother, but how the child can't be acknowledged because of this scandal, and that apparently Cupid's father didn't consent to the marriage, so that makes it illegitimate, which I think is ironic because Cupid's father is Mars, the Roman name for Aries, who is definitely not Venus's husband. But apparently, even when your father is a random god who is not your goddess mother's husband, he still needs to consent to your marriage. Now, at this point in this anniversary episode, you might be thinking to yourself, Liv, we're half an hour in and there is a certain man that you have not brought up yet. Really, there are two, but one of them is Patroclus. Because, of course, so many of you called upon those episodes with Patroclus and Achilles as your favorites. Specifically, (sighs) Patroclus. Come back to me and let the others keep fighting. Achilles continues explaining that he hopes and wishes that all the Trojans die and all the Greeks die, and it's only he and Patroclus left to crumble the buildings of Troy together. So specifically that actually Mergen Mergen on Instagram said the loving sighs every time you mentioned Patroclus when you covered the Iliad. Patroclus... Patroclus, Patroclus. Oh, my heart. Patroclus, Patroclus, Patroclus. And Richard Mortis, who mentioned the way you go about telling the last moments of Patroclus is so damn powerful and moving. It's one of my favorite readings ever. The narration of the Iliad switches. Now the narrator directs everything as if he's speaking to Patroclus himself. It has the effect of dramatizing the forthcoming events far more than before. It's powerful. We're speaking directly to Patroclus as everything begins to crumble around him. Now, your spear shatters in your hand and your shield falls from your shoulders. Apollo comes up and unfastens your breastplate, letting it fall to the ground and exposing your bare flesh. From behind, you're stabbed by a Trojan in the shoulder. You're wounded, but you survive. You're now without armor and stabbed in the shoulder, and you try to retreat. You try to flee, to get away, but you know the end is coming. And Hector sees you too. Hector charges at you, and he drives his spear into your stomach, 
pushing it all the way through and to the other side. You fall to your knees, clutching your belly where the spear is driven through. Hector stands over you as you die, telling you it's too bad. Not even your precious Achilles can save you now. One of the most fun things about putting together this episode for you all, as much as, again, it feels like a little self-indulgent, but I haven't re-listened to these episodes since I did them, however long ago it was. And so even just finding that Patroclus clip just now made me so happy and just, you know, pulled back all of those memories and... Ah, <sighs> Patroclus. There are so many more comments I want to read and clips that you've all suggested that I want to play, but I do want to keep this episode to generally the length of a regular episode. So I'd like to leave you first with a few more comments that deserve reading, not that the rest of yours don't, so I'm so sorry if I did not get to read your comments. I really got so many. I've read them all, just not allowed on the podcast, and I am so grateful. But there are a couple more I want to read, like J.M. Boyle on Instagram, who said, In episode 130, I absolutely adored your podcast on the poetess and LGBTQ icon Sappho. Presenting the too often ignored historical representation of queer women from antiquity was as inspiring as Sappho's beautiful quotes that you read us. Thank you for always being positive, passionate, and progressive. That makes me very happy. Or Kay Wollston, who said, Literally the entire show, but my top favorite is probably the episode on Euripides' Trojan Women. I love that you make sure to let us know it was a pro-woman play that had to be played by men. Or Elizabeth Skelton, who said, Fave moments are when you hate on Theseus, that narcissistic little bitch. And an email I got from Gabrielle, who said, I just want to talk about how you highlight the many badass women and queer icons in Greek mythology, especially the lesser known women who are basically erased from many Greek mythology books. A lot of people ignore those sides and instead talk about the not so good men who kidnap harm or take advantage of women because they're a god. And you showing that there can be badass individuals who are not horrible people just gives me a little bit of hope. A lot of you mentioned the LGBTQIA stories that I've told, and I am so appreciative of that. I try to make sure that I cover as many as I can possibly find ever. I do always want to make clear that representation matters, and any time that I can add to that representation in Greek mythology and in the world, I am so grateful to be doing it. Really, there are so many more quotes and suggestions that I want to read. I'm having to physically stop myself. So instead, we're going to end it with a few clips of, well, my main man. Because so many of you made sure to mention that those were your favorite moments. Odysseus. My main man, Odysseus. Nestor meets with the injured Greek kings, Agamemnon, Diomedes, and my main man, Odysseus. And finally, my main man, Odysseus. Like Mary Coate, who said any reference to my main man, Odysseus. Or Rachel Comandi, who said my main man, Odysseus. What a guy, even if he is still highly problematic at times. 
or may north who said just you being obsessed with odysseus i love that you all love that because fuck i do stan a problematic king and that might be the first time in my adult life i have ever used the term stan you're welcome oh odysseus things are really turning around for my main man odysseus drinks it but nothing happens Still, Circe smacks Odysseus on the head with her magic wand, announcing that he should go out to the sty where he'll find his friends. But my main man Odysseus expected this. He pulls his sword on Circe, and he leaps at her, the sword at her throat. Odysseus is not always my main man, friends. Well, honestly, thank you all so much for listening to this. This was so much fun to put together, to listen to these quotes that I haven't heard in three or four years. It really made me feel great and was a really fun thing to work on and read through all of your comments and suggestions and emails, all of it. Such a thrill. And so I leave you with one last clip, one that many of you mentioned, but fortunately, one of you actually told me what episode it was in. So thank you to Sarah Joy Schultz on Instagram, who said, Love episode 30. You go off about a dumb, misinformed, negative review, and it gave me life. And because I can, I'm going to first thank you all for the wonderful reviews I've gotten lately on iTunes. You don't know how happy they make me. Also, I'm going to point out one one-star review that I find hilarious. A user who, appropriately, goes by the moniker who pooped, would like you all to know that this podcast is for women only. That's right. Explicitly for women only. And why, you may ask? Well, it's because not only do I, apparently, make constant sarcastic shots at men, a claim which I don't really think is true. I do take a great many shots at men, but I think the word constant is a bit of an overstatement. But I digress. No, this podcast is for women only because, sure, I state that I'm a feminist, but it apparently doesn't excuse the fact that, quote, projecting the acts of fictional gods onto modern day men is rather exhausting to listen to. And here's why I want to address this. It's not because it's a bad review. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. This person doesn't like me. That's totally cool. No, my issue is with the premise they place onto what I'm saying in this podcast. One, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe people will point out instances where I do this, but it is rarely my intention to place any blame on modern men. That's not to say that I don't have opinions about men of my time, and I do. Because spoilers, women are still treated like garbage. But no, that's rarely, if ever, my point in this podcast. I almost exclusively am referring to men of ancient Greece, which leads me to, I'm sorry, this idea that I'm projecting fictional gods onto real men. Where do you think these fictional gods came from? Fiction, by definition, is thought up by someone. These fictional gods were thought up by real men who projected their own thoughts and feelings about women onto these gods and created stories where said gods ruined women just for the sake of it. It wasn't women who thought up these stories, that's for sure. Not only because women are unlikely to create stories like this, but mainly because women didn't have a voice in ancient Greece. 
Men created the gods in their image because that's what religion is. Men came up with these myths. Men came up with the gods. I grant you, these were ancient Greek men, but the gods didn't spring up from nowhere. Certainly not if a person is concluding that they are indeed fictional. Did these fictional gods spring from the ether? No, they were created by men. And so it is men I blame for the misogyny, which in itself is a valid concept in this world. Anyway, thanks for listening, friends. I do enjoy a good rant about my own feminist righteousness. Thank you all so much for listening. This is the coolest job in the world, and obviously I couldn't do it without you. Here's to another four years. I am Liv, and I love this shit. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.